Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. We're glad that you've joined us today as we study the Bible with you. And uh, If you haven't watched this program before, let me explain how it operates. We take viewers' questions and answer your questions. Uh, most of them are about the Bible. A lot of them are about life that wonder what the Bible has to say about it. So that's what we do, and we think that's a great way for all of us to get to know our Bible a little bit better. So you'll see a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. Use those any time to get in touch with us and uh, tell us what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible. I'm Steve Tandy. Let me introduce my two partners here. Toby Levering's back. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. And Jeff Martin's here. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Glad you're both here and studied up and ready to go. And we've got uh, lots of good questions coming up, but we always have one for our viewers first. So here's yours to get the day started. Uh, how many years could an Israelite own a slave? There was slavery of a sort in the Old Testament, uh, but there was a limit on it. So if, see if you know the answer to that little bit of Bible trivia. We'll give you the answer at the end of the program. See if you know about that one. All right, Toby looks like he drew the first one today, yes, so get us kicked off. Yeah, before I answer the first question, I want to address a previous episode and a question that I answered that was brought to my attention about uh, where did Noah's sons get his wives. And I answered that incorrectly, so I thought I would make that a correction on the air. We do have a lot of Bible viewers and students who watch this program regularly, so uh, the answer to the question where uh, Noah's sons find his wives, they went on the ark with him. Him, and that's found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. I, I misinterpreted the question, so my apologies for any confusion on that. But hopefully you've, uh, if you go back to that episode and look, and if you care about it, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. Now to the question today is, why does it take so long for God to answer prayer? And my answer to that is because God's timeline is different than ours. Indeed, God doesn't really have a timeline. You and I, that's all we think about. As we're taping this program, we have a clock that's counting down. We're always mindful of the time. Uh, I wear a watch on my wrist. I'm always mindful of the time. Uh, it's very hard to get outside of the understanding of time, but God is outside of time. And for human beings that are limited by it, <clears throat> we wonder sometimes why God can take so long to answer prayer. Now, the simple, uh, any prayer request, any question that we might request that we might have of God uh, can be really answered with three answers. Yes, no, or wait. So the first part of the question is to answer a prayer. Sometimes God, you can ask for something, God will say no. That's not because he wants to hurt you or harm you, but because he knows uh, that for him to grant that prayer request to, to say yes to it would actually harm you. So we have to trust when God says no that that's exactly the right answer, too. Uh, now, to the other two answers, yes or wait, um, 
those those things will happen when God's ready for them to happen. If we think of in the stories of the Bible where God made a promise to to do something, there was many times it would be a long time before that was answered. Uh, a couple of examples, God promised Abram a son, but it was decades between the time God made the promise and when God fulfilled the promise. God promised uh, that he would send a savior, but it was centuries before God made the promise and God fulfilled the promise. We've got to remember that God's outside of our timeline and our expectations. So we have to keep that perspective in mind and understand that God's timeline is just going to be different, but when it happens, it will be exactly at the right time. Let's look at Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 together. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Whether it comes to our repentance or to answering our prayer requests, uh, God will exactly answer exactly in the right way at exactly the right time. Uh, Be patient and wait upon the Lord. Hope that helps. All right. Got a question that we get uh, pretty often on Know Your Bible. People look at the church and wonder why are there so many different churches? And this viewer says, why are there so many denominations? Uh, My answer in real short form would be there are so many denominations because there are so many humans. Uh, the church is made up of humans, and humans have problems. Uh, we don't always do the right thing. Uh, for instance, Jesus said clearly in John 17, he prayed that his followers would be one. He said, I want them to be perfectly united. Uh, I want them to be one just like you and the Father. I and the Father are one. So that was his desire, that all Christians be unified, be one, not be separated, named to different things and all that. But the church, like I said, is made up of people, and people have a hard time getting along. Uh, You get two people together, they sometimes don't coexist perfectly. Now, it's possible, and bigger groups of people, it's harder, but it's still possible, a marriage, two people can agree that they have the same focus, they have the same desire, the same goal, uh, and they can disagree about things but still stay unified. Uh, Sometimes in business, people can have different points of view and all that, but they agree on the main goal and they stay together. Sometimes they don't. Well, that's the way it works in churches. Uh, Sometimes people can get together and stay together and agree with each other or disagree but still stay unified but a lot of times they don't and that's where denominations come from Uh, at some point in a group of Christians uh, there's going to be a disagreement this person thinks this this person thinks this it may be over a doctrine it may be over a, a, a practical matter it may be over something but at some point they figure out I don't want to agree. I want my way. I'm going to do it my way, so we got to separate. Okay? Uh, that's when the division happens, and one names his little group something, and the other one names his little group something, and we have a new denomination. Uh, whether it's out of ego or jealousy or pride, or, there are lots of reasons 
but it's the humanness in us. It's the flesh. Let's look at a verse that just flat out says this is the way it is among humans. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul says the desires of the flesh, that's our humanness, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, let's go back to our start. Jesus, the spirit, said, I want you to all be one. The flesh says, nah, I can't be one all the time. So that's where denominations come from, is disagreements over uh, something between people. Now, I know you can blame it on Satan. You can blame it on sin. You can trace it back further if you want. Uh, but I think the simple answer is, is churches are made up of humans, and humans divide sometimes. Uh, Jeff, you got one about uh, Ecclesiastes. Yes. Strange book. The next question <laughs> is, it is, if, if the dead know nothing, how can we live forever? Uh, and, of course, you see there the verse Ecclesiastes 9.5 is actually referenced um, by the person that asked this question. Uh, so let's look at the verse that contains this phrase first. Ecclesiastes 9, 5. For the, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Um, if we were to take this verse all by itself, uh, it would be pretty bleak. It would be telling us that there's nothing after our time here on earth, that we have no reward, and that when we die, that's it. Uh, but if we take this verse in context with the rest of the chapter, with the rest of Ecclesiastes, and of course with the rest of the Bible, we get a completely different message. This specific chapter in Ecclesiastes is talking about a fact that we all know very well, and that's the fact that none of us can escape death. Uh, we will all die. And when that happens, there's some finality to it. Uh, we won't have a say on this earth anymore, and eventually we'll all be forgotten. But the very next verse in this chapter, verse 6, sheds a little more light about what the author is trying to say. It says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Never again will they have any share in all that happens under the sun. And King Solomon writes that phrase quite a bit in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, under the sun. And what that means is, here on earth. So there's no doubt from reading the rest of the Bible, uh, many scriptures uh, prove this, that we are eternal beings. Uh, but this specific verse means that there's a finality that we all face when we die on earth, when we die under the sun. But that finality only exists on earth in the mortal realm. All right. Good answer. And that's the secret to Ecclesiastes, mm -hmm. is that under the sun thing. Mm -hmm. Solomon says some really strange things in there, but when you realize he's talking about life on earth, it all makes sense. That's right. <laughs> a little better sense, anyway. Yeah. All right, let me take just a moment and invite you to visit, uh, uh, to study with us on Know Your Bible. Uh, we know a lot of our viewers are serious Bible students, but some of you aren't, and we encourage Bible study. So we found some tools that we're happy to share with you, uh, absolutely free of charge. Here's one set of lessons we have. There are eight lessons in it, and just starts out real basic, learning the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Uh, then we've got some other courses that you can continue studying uh, the Bible for quite a while with Know Your Bible Study Tools. Uh, we've also got an online course that we're happy to share with you and tell you where to find it. Uh, just go to oneway.worldbibleschool.org. Uh, you can sign yourself up and begin studying online wherever and whenever you want to. Uh, all of those are great options. All of them will help you know your Bible a little bit better. Uh, and all of them are absolutely free, but no charge to you of any kind. So we're happy to share that with you and invite you to study the Bible and know your Bible a little bit better. Uh, Toby has got one, I think, coming up here. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> Hebrews 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Uh, they would like an explanation. Does it mean a person who walks away from God can never come back? All right, well, let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Get a little uh, understanding of what they're asking about. It is impossible for those who have, once, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Uh, their loss, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Uh, again, with most answers to the, these questions on Know Your Bible, it's the answer is pretty much simply context. The book of Hebrews was written to uh, Hebrew Christians, Christians who had come out of uh, the old law and the old ways, and they were facing some challenges in their life as a result of their decision to commit to Christ. And so the author really is, uh, from the beginning to the end of the book, making the case of how much better the way of Christ is and how much better he is and more perfect he is than the old law and the old systems that they were used to. We understand that um, anytime you make a change, it's uh, tempting at first to go back to the old ways uh, until you understand <laughs> the reason that you left the old ways because the new way was better. Uh, if you make that change in the right direction, that's, that's a good thing. Well, the, the authors here is trying to say Christ is the better way. He's the the, the new covenant that he gave them. So the um, author's really trying to make that case. Now, some Hebrew Christians were considering or had already turned away from Christ in their journey, and they had gone back to the, the Hebrew roots that they had come from. They had gone back to their uh, Judaistic ways. And so um, that's who he's addressing here, and he's really making the point that um, and some people don't like this passage because they think that, well, um, seems to indicate a person could uh, lose their salvation. And we understand that you, while you are eternally secure in Christ, and that can never be taken from you, a person can choose to give it up. And some of these Hebrew Christians had done that. And uh, that's what he's saying here. There's, there's, this is <laughs> people who go back to from Christ into the world, it's going to be a lot harder for them. So you ask, can can they never come back? Well, I don't think it's that's true. I mean, they they certainly can come back, but it sure is a lot more difficult uh, once they've been and seen Christ, seen the way of Christ, and and decided in their heart for whatever reason, this is not for me, and they go back to the old ways. Uh, it's a lot harder to come back from that. Um, the uh, the, the next couple of verses, he'll talk, use the analogy of a field, and it rains on the field, and 
but some fields produce thorns and thistles. And it's a really good picture that, you know, if you let thorns and thistles crop up in your heart, uh, it'll choke out the Word and choke out Christ in your life. So it's not impossible, but it is challenging. So the whole book is just encouraging those Christians, to, <coughs> Hebrew Christians, to stay faithful to Christ uh, and an encouragement for us as well, too. All righty. Thank you, Toby. Uh, follow up to our question earlier about denominations and why are there so many. Uh, viewer asked, what denomination is your church? Well, let's talk about denomination just a little bit first, what that means. Uh, it just simply means to be named, nominate, no, named separately. Uh, for instance, if you've got a billfold or a purse, you may have some different bills in there, and we say we got different denominations of bills. Uh, I probably have a one and might have a five and might even have a ten, I don't know. Uh, but I, I call them that because they're denominated, they're named a one and a five and a ten. Well, that's the way with churches. Some churches name themselves because they want to be differentiated from others. Our example earlier was one denomination that has a disagreement in it, so one part splits off and denominates, names itself, something else. Okay, this program is presented by the Churches of Christ, and we mention that every week and invite you to visit the Church of Christ. Uh, this isn't the greatest source in the world, but they're pretty close on this one. We're going to check Wikipedia about Churches of Christ. <laughs> Yeah, here's what they say about Churches of Christ. Churches of Christ are autonomous, that means self-governing, Christian congregations associated with one another through common beliefs and practices. They seek to base doctrine and practice on the Bible alone in order to be the church described in the New Testament. Uh, catch that last line there. Uh, we seek to be the church described in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean we claim to be the only right church. It just means uh, we don't want to be denominated. We don't want to be called a certain kind of church. We just want to be the church that the Bible talks about. Uh, when you read the New Testament, it doesn't talk about church A, church B, church C. Uh, it just talks about the church. So that's our theory in Churches of Christ is if we just follow the Bible... Couldn't we just be unified? Uh, we don't have to denominate ourselves from somebody else. Now, that's our theory, and we say we just try to follow the Bible. Uh, we'll speak where the Bible speaks. We'll be silent where the Bible is silent. We'll call Bible things by Bible names. Uh, we got lots of little slogans like that. That's what we try to do. And that's a real good theory, uh, and I think it's the only way for Christians to ever be one. It's hard in practice, I will admit that, and we don't do perfectly at it. Uh, we still disagree about some things. So, in general, Churches of Christ agree on the basics, the major things. Uh, we have common beliefs and practices because of trying to follow the Bible, and we're unified in that sense. Uh, we don't claim to be a denomination. If you ask, we'd say we're non-denominational, I guess. Uh, but that's because our goal is to just be the church in the New Testament. And that's why we call ourselves Churches of Christ. We're just churches that belong to Christ. Uh, we don't need another name than that. So uh, what kind of denomination is the Church of Christ? 
were non-denominational. Jeffrey. Yes, I have an interesting one uh, here. What kind of fish swallowed Jonah? Was it a whale? And this is a, a common misconception. It's a common belief, and I blame children's songs and children's illustrations for this. But it's commonly believed that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Uh, but as all of you who watch this program regularly and who read your Bible regularly know, there are a lot of common beliefs about the Scripture and the Bible that are actually inaccurate, and this one's no different. So let's look right at the story of Jonah in the book of Jonah and see exactly what the Bible says. And this is in Jonah 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we can see, and this is the NIV translation, and I can tell you that uh, any other legitimate translation says the same thing, uh, and the whale is never mentioned, only a big fish. I think what happens here is our human imagination fills in the blanks. We think what type of beast that's in the ocean could swallow a man and have that man be inside of that beast for three days and three nights, and we automatically go to a whale. But from a biblical perspective, that is not accurate. All we know is that there was a big, unidentified fish that was sent by God to swallow Jonah. Unidentified swimming object. That's right. USO. <laughs> Quite possibly it was one of a kind. Yeah. God, God may have made it just, just for that purpose, so we don't know. All right, let me take this moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. And since we just talked about Churches of Christ, uh, let me tell you where a few are, since they're the ones that promote this, uh, support this program and provide it for you. Uh, one in Derby, Kansas, and one in Wellington, Kansas. Uh, both are groups of people, uh, Christians, that have gotten together and said, let's just follow the Bible. Uh, let's call ourselves just the church that belongs to Christ. Uh, let's follow the Bible and do what it says and try to be as a, uh, correct to it as we can and love the Lord and serve Him. So if you're interested in that kind of a group of Christians, uh, one in Derby and one in Wellington, you have the addresses there, uh, both great groups of folks that would uh, welcome you warmly. And like I said, you'll find some folks that uh, think and study the Bible just like we do here on Know Your Bible. So give them a visit or any Church of Christ. Uh, whatever viewing area you're in, there's probably a Church of Christ close to you. Give them a visit or tell them you watch the program and appreciate them having it on the air for you. All right, Toby, what, uh, what's your viewer after here? He wants to know what will death feel like. Does it say anywhere in the Bible what death will feel like? Well, in terms of the actual process, no. It doesn't tell us what that will feel like. Uh, there's a very brief mention of, in Scripture of an after-death experience in Luke chapter 16, uh, of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and um, the Scripture describes that in Luke chapter 16. I'm looking at verse 22. The time came when the beggar died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And he said, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the dip 
tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Uh, Abraham replied, son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Well, that's one example of one man's experience and what it felt like after he died. Now, that doesn't apply to everyone, but it gives us some insight in what the afterlife will to some degree be like after death. Uh, it seems he has the ability, he's conscious, he has memory, he's able to communicate, he can uh, feel pain and so forth. So uh, there are some some very uh, principles that we get from this uh, illumination into what it might be in the afterlife. But the main thing the Bible says in terms of when you die is that you face judgment and you, be, you need to be ready for that. Uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 together on the screen. Uh, together, uh, just as people are de- destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Uh, The only way to prepare for uh, judgment and and prepare for after death is to go to the source of life, eternal life, Christ Jesus. All right, got a question about communion. Viewer says, my Catholic friends uh, told me that non-Catholic visitors aren't allowed to take communion. Now, what's the Bible say? about visitors and communion. Well, uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about visitors and communion. The Bible just basically talks about communion or the Lord's Supper uh, being for Christians. Uh, doesn't even consider the fact that a non-Christian might want to take communion uh, because it's a sign of fellowship between yourself and the Lord. So the Bible just talks about Christians uh, observing communion. Now, I understand that today there are basically two kinds of churches. Some are practice what we call open communion. Some practice closed communion. Uh, what our viewer is talking about is closed communion, where the church decides uh, who is an, uh, uh, a member in good standing, let's say, and is allowed to take communion. Uh, whereas someone who's not a Christian or someone who's uh, not in good standing is not allowed to take communion. Uh, the other side of that is an open communion church where they don't police it. Just whoever wants to take communion can. Now, the practice still applies that communion is for Christians. Uh, it's fellowship between them and the Lord, but uh, that's the two difference. Now, if the Bible says anything about it, it kind of implies that it's not the church's business. Uh, let's read that verse and see if that makes sense to you. First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Paul says, Let a person examine himself, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So uh, Paul says here that when we're taking communion, it's up to the individual Christian to examine himself and see if he is doing this in a, a good way and the right way. So church is kind of out of it. Now, it's one way of looking at it. All right, we're glad you've been with us today. But we're out of time for any more questions. Let me make sure we get our trivia question answered. Uh, how many years could an Israelite own a slave? And believe it or not, uh, there was such a law, Exodus 21-2, you can read about it. 
seven years. If uh, someone had a slave, and often it was an indentured servant, you had to turn him free after seven years. Glad you've been with us today and hope you come back next week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.